Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Jessica Shepard, and you're listening to part three of a four-part Michigan crime story series on the circumstances surrounding the murder of a Michigan man named Kevin Bacon and his killer, often referred to as Michigan's cannibal killer. We suggest you listen to this series in order, so if you haven't yet, go back and listen to parts one and two before returning here. As with the other episodes, this podcast contains extremely disturbing details that are not suitable for sensitive audiences. We suggest careful consideration before listening. People that with mental health illness obviously need treatment, but they still know right from wrong. That doesn't mean they're going to go kill someone. And he did receive treatment in the past, as far as I know. But for the burden of proof, I believe that we showed that he did know right from wrong and that he, pre- he premeditated this and he killed Kevin Bacon. There are certain news stories that go viral, and the killing of Kevin Bacon was one of them, for better or for worse. Within days of Kevin's death, media interest was already high but spread quickly with the help of celebrities. Prior to Kevin's body being discovered, a missing person flyer circulated that included pictures of Kevin's tattoos, several of which appear to be depictions of Jeffree Star, a popular makeup artist, social media influencer, and business owner. Someone shared the tattoo images with Star, who later donated $20,000 to a GoFundMe started by Kevin's family to offset funeral costs. Star also posted about the case to his currently 6.3 million Twitter followers and 11 million Snapchat followers. R.I.P. Kevin, crying emoji. I'm devastated to hear of the passing of someone from Michigan who lived their life fearlessly and was taken too soon, broken heart emoji. Please help his family in this horrible time, Star posted to Twitter. Meanwhile, Kevin's name is the same as actor Kevin Bacon, who's appeared in more than 70 films since 1969 including one of his most popular acting roles in 1984's Footloose. The actor also took notice of the story and posted about it on his Instagram feed, where he has nearly 2.6 million followers. The actor wrote, I'm thinking this morning about the friends and family of this young person, Kevin Bacon. His life was taken from him much too soon. His love was hairdressing. I bet he would have done a great job on this mess on my head. R.I.P. K.B. Live reporters asked Kevin's father, Carl Bacon, how his son came to have the same name as a famous actor. I wanted the same initials as mine, but I didn't want Carl Jr., so that made sense, Kevin's dad said. The other Kevin Bacon wasn't quite as famous as he is now. Does the sun shine bright forever? Have your fears and your pain gone away? The outpouring of support for Kevin and his family was even more evident at the local level. Dozens helped search for him while he was still missing. Friends painted a huge slab of concrete known as the Flint Rock with rainbow colors, birth and death dates, and the message, rest in peace, Kevin Bacon. A GoFundMe raised over $37,000, 
and nearly 100 friends, family, acquaintances, and strangers attended a candlelight vigil and balloon release in Kevin's honor that was hosted at his former high school. Kevin's father spoke to the crowd at the vigil and released a Mylar unicorn balloon with a rainbow-colored mane. It just shows us how much our son has been really appreciated more than we ever realized. It's been touching. It's been very touching. Carl, when you were speaking, you talked about how you weren't sure if, if um, being a good parent, but looking around and seeing what you see, does that kind of, how does that change? Yeah, it's changed my mind greatly. I mean, I, like I said, Kevin, we, since we were closer to Kevin, he always took his frustrations out on us. Um, <laughs> so it's, and so we, we saw the, the different side of him sometimes. We always wondered well, if we've done a good job or not. And as a parent, you always kind of do. You always kind of want to do a good job. Not. And then with this outpouring of support, we kind of realized that, yeah, we, we we have done a good job. We did do a good, good work now. And we raised a good kid, and he just got into a, uh, he just met the wrong person. And unfortunately, that, that person took them from us. A few days prior to the vigil, the Shiawassee County Prosecutor's Office on December 30th, 2019, arraigned a wild-bearded Latunsky on charges of open murder, punishable by up to life in prison, and mutilation of a body, punishable by up to 10 years in prison. The open murder charge gave prosecutors leeway to secure conviction for first-degree premeditated murder, which is an automatic life sentence, second-degree non-premeditated murder, punishable by up to life at a judge's discretion, or manslaughter, which is an unintentional killing, punishable by up to 15 years in prison. When identified as Mark Latunsky at his arraignment, Latunsky said that was not his name. His name was Edgar Thomas Hill, and that Mark Latunsky was actually his nephew. I had filed a motion for forensic evaluation and criminal responsibility, discussed the matter with the prosecutor's office. There's no objection. I would rely on the reasons stated in my motion for that. I'd move the court to grant the motion for a competency and forensic evaluation. Additionally, I filed a notice of insanity defense. That's Latunsky's appointed attorney, Doug Corwin, who spoke to media following the hearing. If they find him competent, then they will go further and do the criminal responsibility because we're alleging maybe at the time of the offense, he was criminally insane. Uh, he believes he's named someone else. He believes he is from a royal family, family out of Wales, Thomas clan. And just the nature of the crime itself, uh, you've got to send him for this evaluation. Twice in February 2020, while in the Shiawassee County Jail, Latunsky was hospitalized for medical reasons that are not clear from documents reviewed by MLive. At the time, Latunsky's attorney said, quote, It is rumored that Latunsky has been on a hunger strike. These rumors are false. Mr. Latunsky is eating appropriately. Furthermore, Mr. Latunsky is under camera surveillance and monitored by jail staff around the clock. Latunsky was transported to the Michigan Forensic Center for Competency Evaluation on January 22, 2019. A summary of that evaluation that was later filed with the court said Latunsky was restricting his food and water intake based on delusional beliefs. Latunsky has maintained a long-standing belief that someone was poisoning his water with heavy metals. He said he'd previously tested his water supply and those tests confirmed his suspicions. According to the evaluation summary, Latunsky also said he kept, quote, samples of certain bodily fluids in his home to allow for continued testing of lead and some heavy metals in the future, unquote. He reported believing that he was born in Canada and smuggled to the United States by his birth mother to be replaced by a person named Mark Latunsky. He said several families in the Shiawassee County area held global influence through multi-generational trust funds that led to people being murdered, poisoned, and forced to have children in accordance to hereditary property rights. Latunsky told the evaluator 
he could tell which families were involved by the color of their hair and eyes, and that it was his mission to root out corruption and expose the conspiracy throughout the county and state. The report said Latunsky's, quote, delusional belief system appeared to permeate his rational understanding of individuals involved in his court case, unquote. Mainly, he felt the attorneys and judges were conspiring against him. The evaluation determined Latunsky was not competent to stand trial. The Michigan Forensic Center is located in Saline, Michigan, and has a 272-bed psychiatric facility that houses people who have been found incompetent to stand trial and are receiving treatment to be restored to competency, which defense attorneys say often involves antipsychotic medication, more so than meaningful in-depth therapy. The Forensic Center also houses those who have been found not guilty by reason of insanity. While awaiting trial, Latunsky would spend more than a year and a half housed in the psychiatric center. This is Dr. Deborah Pinels with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. So in Michigan, when there is an observation that a defendant looks like they have a mental illness or an intellectual or developmental disability that's impeding their ability to work with their lawyer or, or understand their charges factually or rationally or the proceedings against them, then the judge would order a competence to stand trial evaluation. In 2021, the Forensic Center received 3,200 requests for competency reviews. The interview would look at their history of mental illness or intellectual or developmental disabilities. Uh, they would be asked questions about, do they understand their charges? Do they understand the potential penalties? Do they understand potential verdicts? Do they understand how a trial process works? And if there are symptoms of mental illness um, or again, intellectual disability that are causing them to have difficulties in any of those areas uh, that could lead to an opinion that the person is incompetent to stand trial. Lutowski was initially found incompetent to stand trial on February 27, 2020, and referred to the Forensic Center for Treatment with the goal of restoring competency. Dr. Pinel said between 20 and 25 percent of felony defendants who are referred for competency are found incompetent based on recent data. However, the majority, like Latunsky, are eventually restored and able to face prosecution. Gabby Silver is an attorney who's defended numerous defendants suffering from mental illness, including Raymond Durham, who shot and killed Wayne State University police officer Colin Rose in 2016, and later shot two Detroit police officers who survived when they attempted to arrest Durham in March of 2017. Durham's case was eventually dismissed because he was repeatedly found incompetent to stand trial. In Michigan, the state has 15 months to rehabilitate someone to competency before criminal charges must be dismissed. My name is Gabby Silver. Uh, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I've been practicing for 30 plus years, close to 40 at this point. My practice is uh, located in the city of Detroit. So, so what happens is, you know, there's a, a two-pronged test, whether or not somebody is able to understand the nature of the charges against them and whether or not somebody's able to rationally assist in their own defense. Competency is not a very hard bar to get over. You know, it's, do you understand what's going on? You know, do you know that you're charged with a murder? Do you know that you're going to come to court? Do you know the job of the prosecutor? Do you know the job of your lawyer? You know what the judge does and what the jury does. And that's not that hard of a bar to, to, to pass over. Once that determination is made, they let's say they put you in the forensic center, they medicate you, they get you better, they're able to medicate you and you know, you're in a much better place than you were when you came in. The next issue is at the time of the offense, were you so mentally ill that you could not conform your behavior? 
Shiawassee Prosecutor Scott Kerner said Latunsky was found incompetent to stand trial at least twice. After initially being found incompetent, the law requires a competency review every 90 days. During a May 12, 2020 follow-up evaluation, it was determined Latunsky still exhibited many of his delusional beliefs. He often wouldn't respond to jail staff and shared new delusions. At the time, the coronavirus pandemic had shut down much of Michigan commerce, and many Michigan jails also implemented new rules to help slow the spread. Latunsky believed he would soon be released from prison because he had skills to help combat the pandemic. Up until this time, jailers were transporting Latunsky from the jail to the forensic center. On June 29, 2020, Latunsky was admitted to the forensic center under a paranoid schizophrenia diagnosis for ongoing treatment. A lot of the same delusions about his heritage and water poisoning persisted. Latunsky spoke frequently about his religion, Odinism, which is worship of the Norse god Odin that, although not inherently racist, has been associated with Nazis and skinheads, especially within prison populations, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center and Anti-Defamation League. Latunsky also seemed fixated on days of the week, believing each day represented a different stage in humanity's evolution. On July 9, 2020, doctors updated Latunsky's psychiatric diagnosis from paranoid schizophrenic to, quote, psychosis not otherwise specified, rule out schizophrenia, unquote. Over the next few weeks, Latunsky described the killing of Kevin as a victimless crime and said he was confused as to why the charges hadn't been dismissed. In an October 18, 2020 progress note, Dr. Sedlatunsky acknowledged he was having prior delusions about food around the time of Kevin's killing. Quote, he described in more detail how he believed the world would be facing famine in the near future and that he needed to prepare a food source. He mentioned, as he did on a previous meeting, that when there is no food left, people will need to eat people, unquote. This is notable since it's the first time Latunsky admitted that any of his thoughts might be considered delusional by others. A month later, doctors reevaluated Latunsky and determined he was now competent to stay in trial. Despite ongoing delusions about his lineage, he still maintained his children were not his own, and being poisoned, the delusions no longer seemed to shape his understanding of the court processes, the evaluator said. With a competent designation, Latunsky could now move forward to the preliminary examination. A preliminary exam is a mini-trial, usually with fewer witnesses and no jury, during which a judge determines whether there is probable cause that a reasonable juror could determine a crime was committed. Here's Michigan State Police Detective Sergeant James Moore testifying at the prelim on October 23, 2020. Did you ask him about the manifest? I did. And what did he say? He said that he met um, the man in the basement. He identified this, this uh, Kevin Bacon. He said that they initiated a conversation on Grindr, um, that an agreement had been made between the two of them to engage in sexual activity. Um, and that at the end of that sexual activity, Latunsky stated Bacon uh, wanted him to make his body disappear. At the hearing, Latunsky's attorney asked the judge to add a new count of assisting in a suicide, which is a felony punishable by up to five years in prison in Michigan. Judge Clarkson denied that request and bound Latunsky over for trial in the circuit court. Latunsky appeared at the hearing remotely from the forensic center, where he continued to receive psychiatric treatment. Kevin's parents heard a lot of new details that they weren't aware of prior to the hearing. Sergeant James Moore testified about his interview with Latunsky, who said he picked up Kevin at the parking lot in Clayton Township. Kevin wore blinders, earmuffs, restraints, and was placed into the back of Latunsky's van with two blankets. He also described the secret basement room Kevin was discovered hanging from a pulley system inside, near sex toys and a trap door with dirt beneath. 
Moore said Kevin had discussed his desire to be, quote, gang-raped, and that Latunsky blindfolded Kevin, put him in arm and leg restraints, and role-played as various different men. He pretended to be different people bidding on Kevin at a sex auction. When they were laying on the wood plank floor following sex, Latunsky said Kevin told him that he'd been suicidal in the past and requested that Latunsky help make him disappear, Moore testified. Moore went on to talk about the plans Latunsky made to dispose of Kevin's body, including eating portions, creating fertilizer, and ordering a food dehydrator to turn Kevin's muscles into jerky. Uh, I'm right now, I'm, I'm just, um, my anxiety levels through the roof. Um, I heard things before I haven't heard them yet, so um, I'm just trying to process it all and take it all in. Gosh, we're into October, almost the end of October. It's been 10 months without your son. How are both of you doing? How are you pushing? We're, we're struggling. We're struggling. We're struggling with it. It's, it's, it's been hard. Anybody who loses a child, it's a struggle. And to lose it this way, it's, it's even worse. Yeah. Then the, the events of the past year, and it's been... It's been hard. <laughs> it's been mind-numbing. Not mind-numbing, yeah. Mm-hmm. But this is what you wanted. Yeah. 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 While the criminal prosecution was underway, there was other activity in the civil courts, a property dispute over who would own Latunsky's house with a kill room in the basement on nearly five acres of land, valued at the time near $93,000. In his text messages with James Carlson, Latunsky alluded to the fact that his home would soon be foreclosed on. It was put up for sale at the Shiawassee County Sheriff's Auction on February 26, 2020, one day before a judge initially deemed Latunsky incompetent to stand trial. Prior to that, Mark Latunsky's brother, Paul Latunsky, was trying to pay off the amount due to the mortgage company, but the mortgage company wouldn't release information since Paul Latunsky wasn't on the contract. This led Paul Latunsky to seek a conservatorship over Mark Latunsky's estate. This is Owasso attorney Curtis L. Zaleski, who represented Mark and Paul Latunsky in the property dispute. He sought emergency appointment as conservator, which he did get appointed, but it was the day of the auction. So then he figured, well, no harm, no foul. We'll just redeem the property. If somebody buys it, we'll just redeem the property. That shouldn't be a problem. The house sold for $101,733.28, $21,001 over the asking price, to chiropractor Dr. Stephen Deal, who also operates a car dealership. His son, Alex Deal, placed the winning bid with his father's blessing and money. According to the law, There was still a six-month period during which Paul Latunsky could pay the bid amount to redeem and maintain ownership of Mark Latunsky's property. But the deals placed a notice at the property that they incorrectly believed expedited the process. Mr. Stephen Deal went to the property and attempted to um, post a 30-day notice of acceleration of the redemption period. Zaleski said the 30-day notice to accelerate the process doesn't apply to private property sales which this was. But nevertheless, after 30 days, Alex Steele began moving into the house and Paul Latunsky, who owns a home and a large amount of land in the area, took notice. So he went up to the property. He had taken an unloaded shotgun with him. Um, And when they got up to the property, obviously Alex was moving things in and out of the property in a pickup truck um, that later was determined was owned by his father. But he was loading up uh, a trailer outside, and there was a big argument that it, uh, that ensued. Um, Alex Deal uh, alleged that uh, the gun was pointed at him. 
Um, and my client was, um, uh, the police ended up coming to the property. They took statements and Paul Latunsky was actually charged with a felonious assault, uh, from that incident, um, a charge that was later dismissed. After the dispute, civil litigation continued and Alex Steele was legally evicted in September, 2020. Online property records indicated it is now owned by Latunsky's sister. My understanding of the house is it's a extremely nice house. Well done. Extra, it was extravagantly. It was, it was in the middle of being remodeled when the incident with Mark occurred. The basement was remodeled, was very well done. Um, when Alex got in there, they were, they were obviously treasure hunting. They tore out the, the basement ceiling. Um, they tore out wiring. Um, they, you know, like I said, they sold a lot of the personal property. I mean, we're talking about crystal. Um, he had, um, a lot of bronze materials, um, like, uh, a Celtic things that he was collecting that were very exquisite. He had, uh, uh the dishes. There were, um, coins. I mean, just everything was gone. Ultimately, a judge ruled in favor of Mark Latunsky's estate ordering the deals to pay back more than $900,000 based on damages, loss of income, and missing property. The decision is being contested in the State Court of Appeals. James Carlson, who escaped Latunsky's basement in October 2019 and called police, also filed a federal civil lawsuit against Latunsky in June of 2020. Zaleski represented Latunsky in that case as well. He filed the lawsuit on the basis of the statement that he gave the police, that, you know, this story about him waking up and being chained to basement which was a complete lie. He knew Mark. He knew him prior to this, had been conversing with him. Mark had actually been in, divorce, in New York. Um, he came here voluntarily. There was a plan. After the, the incident with the, where the police arrested Mark, of course, they got Mark's phone, I think, and that led him back to Mr. Carlson because they had been conversing together. In fact, conversing the night that the police came to the house. And, um, he had all, you know, they had his whole day. They, they then went out in like, I think February surprise visited him in New York and got his phone and got a statement from him where he basically said, yeah, I, you know, that wasn't what I said wasn't true. Zaleski read many of the communications between Latunsky and Carlson. The role playing torture stuff, um, that clearly that was going on. And, uh, he described, um, and this is in my pleading, so it is public record, the, the, pig butcher role play that they were playing, which included being hung upside down naked and, um, and, uh, sex role play from there. I mean, that was part of what Carlson had uh, testified or stated was going on in his deposition. Well, what is pig butcher role play? Um, well, they hang you, uh, he would hang Carlson upside down from the ceiling and, uh, his role was to be the pig, I guess. And, and, uh, Mr. Latunsky was role was the, was the butcher, I guess. Zaleski described Carlson as a normal looking clean cut man in his forties who was unemployed and received social security disability payments. Zaleski also said he was erratic, combative, and screaming a lot during a deposition taken for the civil lawsuit. Zaleski said Carlson left Latunsky's home on good terms and had plans to visit another time. They continued to talk about the fantasies, the role play, and I can't wait to get back there and all those things. That's, that's what really sunk his lawsuit. Once Latowski was jailed and charged with murdering Kevin Bacon, Carlson began looking at things a little bit differently, according to Zaleski. 
I'm sure that after the fact that he had the feeling that, you know, that could have been me. Carlson's attorney eventually quit the federal case based largely on revelations through depositions and police statements that the story Carlson told him was incomplete, Zaleski said. Carlson had a window of opportunity to hire a new attorney, but he never did, and the case was dismissed in February 2022. I asked Zaleski how the criminal case against Latunsky impacted the small communities in the area. This case not, is not just unusual for this area, it's unusual nationally. I mean, there's not that many cases. I mean, you know, they just had a Netflix special on the Dahmer case that I watched um, that had some similarities, um, you know, in the, the cannibalism aspects. But, you know, so, I mean, it was shock. And also how it impacted Mark Latunsky's family. You know, I can tell you that they're, they're all very devastated, devastated for the family. And, and uh, um, I don't know, I think they're, um, the, their father, I believe, is still under a conservatorship. Um, but he's, you know, elderly, so I don't know if he really knew or was impacted by this, but certainly his brothers and sister was. It's a small community. I've represented Mark and Paul's uncles. I know uh, all of their, uh, I know three or four of their uncles that are in the, that have lived in the area and been successful businessmen. And I think, you know, worked at General Motors and just like everybody, a lot of the other people in the area. And, and Great people. I mean, great people. You know, Mark, it, it, for whatever me mental illness he may have had, he was a highly intelligent, successful engineer, is my understanding. And so, you know, as you say, if, you're, if your family members are suffering from mental illness, and you know it, it's just not that easy, especially when they, they are uh, intelligent and able to defend themselves. Back in the criminal realm, Latunsky in October 2020 had been bound over for trial in the circuit court. He was no longer in jail but being treated full-time and living in the state psychiatric facility. In May of 2021, Latunsky's family hired Lansing-based attorney Mary Chartier to defend Mark Latunsky. Latunsky's original attorney, public defender Doug Corwin, was dismissed from the case. Chartier requested and was granted another competency evaluation for Latunsky on March 3, 2022. In court, Chartier said, quote, Mr. Latunsky has made some concerning comments to both myself and Mr. Krauss, who is co-counsel on this case, which we both believe indicates he is not competent for trial, at least in our opinion. He does understand, to some degree, what a judge does, what a prosecutor does, what his lawyer does, those sorts of things. But his viewpoint on legal proceedings is impacting his ability to assist us in his defense. Given the looming trial date, I have real concerns about Mr. Latunsky's competency at this time. On April 13, 2022, Dr. Jay Witherell with the Forensic Center again found Latunsky competent to stand trial in a lengthy 43-page report that also outlined a long history of mental illness with ongoing issues. It is a very low bar. Do I think the bar should be higher? I absolutely do. But I'm not in control of the laws of the state. So if an individual is deemed to be competent, no matter whether they suffer from very severe mental health issues, if they are competent, they are able to choose whether they want to plead guilty or not. Mr. Latunsky was found to be competent. He was able to make that choice. With the competency finding, Latunsky now had the right to direct attorneys acting on his behalf, even when they strongly disagreed with his decision, which they did on September 23, 2022, when during a pretrial hearing, Latunsky pleaded guilty to open murder 
and dismemberment of a body. Chartier felt there was a chance for Latunsky to prevail with the not guilty by reason of insanity defense. She was even lining up experts to possibly testify. Beneath the turquoise, burgundy, and tan-painted rotunda ceiling, with a circular stained-glass skylight, in the sparsely filled courtroom of Circuit Judge Matthew Stewart lined with ornate wood paneling, Latunsky, wearing a navy jail uniform and bright orange flip-flops, with chains around his wrists and waist, gave his plea. Mr. Latunsky, on December 24, 2019, were you at 703 West Terrell in Morris, Michigan? Yes, I was. Do you acknowledge the status of Shirebox County? Yes, it is. On that date, were you with Kevin Bacon? Yes, I was. Did you use a knife to stab Mr. Bacon? Yes, I did. Did you know that stabbing Mr. Bacon with a knife would most certainly create a very high risk of death or great bodily harm to Mr. Bacon? Yes, I did. After Mr. Bacon was dead, did you remove part of his body, specifically his testicles? Yes, I did. Did you move those testicles to the kitchen? Yes, I did. Did you do so without legal authorization, meaning you were not doing so to embalm Mr. Bacon's body or to do a proper post-mortem examination? No, I didn't. Mr. Kuski, the court agrees with the attorneys. The court does find you guilty of open murder and dismembering a body, and your conviction now is being part of the record of this court. We cannot, however, give you a sentence yet because we're not there. Now, instead of a trial, the court needed to have a degree hearing, which is rare and involves the judge listening to arguments to determine if the killing was first-degree murder, second-degree murder, or manslaughter. That hearing lasted two days and was largely a rehash of the witnesses and testimony given at the preliminary examination nearly two years prior, with the addition of Latunsky's nearly three-hour interrogation that was played in the courtroom. At the opening of the hearing, Chartier wanted to get something on the record. She asked Latunsky in open court, I want to confirm again, you do not want us, your defense lawyers, to raise any sort of insanity defense in this case. No, Latunsky said. Chartier continued, while your state of mind will be relevant, and that is what Judge Stewart will determine, you do not want us to discuss, again, any mental health diagnoses. Is that correct? That's correct, Latunsky said. While Chartier had hopes her client would be found not guilty by reason of insanity, she was now fighting to keep him out of prison for the rest of his life. Mr. Latunsky's conduct before the event did not suggest that he intended to kill Mr. Bacon and gave it the thoughtful analysis that is required for first-degree murder. And his conduct afterwards certainly shows the same. When law enforcement arrived at Mr. Latunsky's home without a search warrant, Mr. Latunsky voluntarily invited them into his home, which he did not have to do. He did not restrict their movements at all, knowing that Mr. Bacon's body was in his basement. Soon after, the police found Mr. Bacon, and Mr. Latunsky continued speaking as if this was all a big misunderstanding. He thought he would be allowed to leave and take care of his dog. He never tried to hide Mr. Bacon's body from the police. His comments during the interrogation revealed his state of mind and the inability to fully measure and evaluate the consequences of the killing, which means that Mr. Lotensky is not guilty of first-degree murder. Thank you, Ron. Shiawassee County Prosecutor Scott Kerner insisted the killing was premeditated and there was ample proof. In his closing remarks, Kerner said premeditation requires time for the killer to take a second look and stop themselves before proceeding with the killing. Kerner said there was plenty of time to take a second look. This happened throughout the time span when Latunsky searched for the knife and ultimate murder weapon online, 
when he drove to the Walmart and purchased the knife, when he left Kevin alone in the basement and went upstairs to grab the knife, and further, when he determined Kevin wasn't dying quickly enough after being stabbed and slit Kevin's throat. The judge agreed. He selected the knife because the sword wasn't sharp enough. So, defendant said he went to get the knife. In defense version of the events, quote, there was the matter of doing what I needed to do to complete what I told him I would do, end quote. In defendant's version of events, Kevin wasn't dying quickly enough, so defendant took extra actions to hasten his death. All of that is evidence of premeditation. The court finds defendant guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. As Kevin's parents, Carl Bacon and Pamela Van Horn, stood up to leave the courtroom after learning their son's killer would spend the remainder of his life behind bars. They spoke briefly to the media. We just heard the verdict. It was it was um, murder in the first degree, which is something that we, we've been um, uh, praying for, if you want to pray for that kind of thing. Um, so it's, 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 it's that's in our best interest to see him in prison forever. And um, I, I didn't want him out in public again. Um, it's been a long road, and I'm glad we're, we're almost to the end of it. Um, we got one more, one more hearing to go, and I think hopefully then we can um, put this put this matter to rest. How are you keeping your son's memory alive? Well, uh, we we put together a nice memorial where we where he's laid to rest. Um, I I think about him every day. We both. And um, yeah, he's always in my thoughts. And his sister is having a hard time with it. That's why she couldn't be here. And she just had surgery, but they were like really close. And for her, it's been rough. But for all of us. But it don't bring Kevin back. But at least now we got some type of closure. While Kevin's parents and the prosecution were happy to lock the cell and throw away the key with Latonsky. His attorney, Mary Chartier, said the case illustrates deeper problems related to the harshness and haste with which our criminal justice system treats mental illness. You have a lot of people with really serious mental health issues going into the prison system when really they would be much better treated in a hospital. But our state and our country, quite frankly, doesn't really recognize that. So you have a lot of people in prison who will not get the mental health treatment that they need. Most of those people will ultimately be released and then they may commit another crime because no one's treated the underlying issue. Mr. Latensky will not be released because he's in prison for the rest of his life. I don't think that he'll get the treatment that he needs. And that's a huge tragedy in this case. got tired of the, of the hate and people you know, saying he's faking it, he's faking it, he's not. <laughs> he's absolutely mentally ill and it's not who he used to be. That's next time on the conclusion of this four-part Michigan Crime Stories series. Until then, you can find the latest news from across Michigan at MLive.com. And if you value the work of journalists like Gus, consider becoming an MLive subscriber. 
If you haven't yet, you can subscribe to Michigan Crime Stories wherever you find podcasts to be informed when we release new episodes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.